Hello and welcome to Seeing Red. I'm Mark. And I'm Bethan and thanks for joining us once again. Well done, that was take two. Bethan's already <laughs> fucked up. I forgot what I was supposed to say to say hello to you all. Thank you for joining us and listening to us again. And we're going to launch straight into it today. We are. It's Bethan's turn to tell us about a story. It is and the case I've chosen to cover is one that was requested so long ago but I couldn't, I didn't really feel like there was enough information about the case. And then I went down a bit of a rabbit hole about... And then you went on Wikipedia and bing! There's a lot more than just Wikipedia, I'm joking, Mark. I am joking. Thank you very much. No, I went down a rabbit hole about the death penalty in the UK, capital punishment, and I've learned quite a lot. So it's... Even though the case itself, though, it was quite open and shut and there's not a lot of information... Um, yeah, I've, I've got quite a lot of new facts to share, which is fun. Exciting. But I do apologise. I cannot remember who suggested this week's case. If you're listening and it was you, please remind me on social media and we'll make sure that you get your credit after yeah, the episode. Yeah, for sure, yeah. It was quite a long time ago this was um, requested. And I feel a bit Twisted Britain. I feel like Bob. This is so Twisted Britain yeah, going I've back into historical. the Dark Ages. This week, I'm going to be telling you about the murder of a young girl named Fanny Adams, who was just eight years old when she was brutally killed. And this is going to be the oldest crime myself or Mark has ever looked at on the show. But before we look at this crime from 1867, I want to take you back even further into the 18th century. Whoa! So public punishments have been going on for a very long time in the UK. I'm sure since we've had towns and communities... Um, But the documentation we have seems to kind of start properly from the 1700s when punishments such as whippings, the stocks and the pillory were well attended by the public wanting a good old show. What's the pillory? I will tell you. I'm going to tell you. And more than just these, executions were exceptionally popular events. So, yes, I thought I should probably go into this a bit more detail. So whippings are what you can imagine. The person was a bit whipped Depending I'm going to whip your ass. Depending on what their crime was, they'd have a certain number of whips that they would have been allocated. And where were they whipped? Um, I think it's generally across the back. I don't think yeah. it was um, anything else, but I not don't know enough. Bottom. Jesus, Mark, this is not the kind of podcast Oops. that you want it to be. <laughs> um, stocks are where the person was sat on the floor with their ankles between two planks of wood, and that's where they'd be insulted, kicked tickled which sounds hilarious but actually i hate being tickled so valid spat on (laughs) or whatever people kind of wanted to do to the criminals the pillory was a pole at the top of which were two planks of wood in which the person's wrists and necks would be trapped and they'd stand there with the same sort of punishment so i think when you think of like putting someone in the stocks you think of like your head through and your wrists Mm, like at school face yeah that's a pillory yeah um and also they'd be stood up the whole time so that would be really uncomfortable as well and then yeah the stocks are where you're sat on the floor and you've got your ankles through it so people would be like you'd be on the floor and people would be looking down on you these punishments would be in a public place partly to allow the villagers to see justice being done and also as a deterrent as well because there weren't newspapers and generally people couldn't read anyway, the judges would order executions to be carried out at the scene of the crime for those reasons as well. So a deterrent and also you get to see that there is actually justice being done for the crime that happened. Executions were such a big deal. People who were rich or poor alike would travel to watch public hanging. And there were open galleries which would give the best views. Isn't this just so weird? Mm-hmm. I find that just... That concept that people would want to go and see that as a bit of a day out. Yeah. 
I think that I would go to one though. I wouldn't. No way. Yeah, I feel no like way. maybe we had this conversation on another episode, but I I'm think I, I think I would want to go see. Depending on the crime, but I don't know. One of the open galleries was a place called Mother Proctor's Pews, which gave a good view of the proceedings at London's Tyburn, which was pretty exclusive. An entry cost two shillings or 10p. And considering we're talking about the 1700s, that would have been a lot of money. There was also a house that overlooked Tyburn with iron balconies from which the sheriffs of the City of London and the under-sheriff of Middlesex watched the executions with their invited guests. Can you imagine being one of those that was invited? It's like a royal box, isn't it? Like yeah. an Old Trafford or something. So A private box and you'd entertain them with drinks, mm-hmm. God. And then also the people would be sort of lining the streets of London to kind of make their way as well and that reminded me of like the royal weddings when you sit on tv and people are waiting to see what's going on see when you said that it reminded me of like a state funeral yeah so, like when diana died i mm-hmm. was thinking a non-joyous yeah occasion. whereas yeah. no this is like people are loving this people are going there for a fun day out so in many counties executions were carried out around noon to give all the local people time to get there So they were, like, considerate as well, the executions. Um, Ordinary people would walk for miles to go and watch the executions. By the 1850s, there were even trains laid on to take people from the towns nearby to the town where the hanging was taking place. Quite often, the executions would be held on market days to ensure that everyone could go and see. They would also take school parties to hangings to teach the students moral lessons. I sort of understand that, in a way. Yeah. Yeah, but it is going to traumatise them. Well, they won't hopefully do anything naughty. Yeah. And it wasn't just a moral lesson, this is more you. People had a lot of fun on execution days, and the pubs and gin shops reportedly did a brisk trade. Because why wouldn't you go get drunk in the afternoon after watching someone get hanged? In the UK, there were many different offences according to law that could be punished with death. This law was known as the Bloody Code and it included around 220 crimes such as being in the company of gypsies for a month, strong evidence of malice in a child aged 7 to 14 years of age and blacking the face or using a disguise whilst committing a crime, just to name a few. Most of the crimes were classed as such to basically protect wealthy people, so theft was quite a main one. People could be sentenced to death for theft, poaching, stealing sheep, cattle or horses. And one quote I saw from before the abolition of the death penalty for theft in 1832 said, English law was notorious for prescribing the death penalty for a vast range of offences, as slight as the theft of goods valued at 12 pence. It's really important to note that whilst executions for murder burglary and robbery were common death sentences for minor offenses like petty theft were actually not usually carried out so the death sentence could be commuted and between 1770 and 1830 an estimated 35,000 death sentences were handed down but only 7,000 of these executions were actually carried out so it sounds a lot more savage than it was but it still doesn't seem like it's much of a deterrent because a lot of people are still doing it. But then they would have been really... I was going to say, it's like different back then. I think they'd have been Mm. so desperate. Yeah. 
If a criminal was particularly interesting or the crime had been unusual, the execution could be guaranteed to just draw huge crowds. The hanging of Henry Fauntleroy, a gentleman at Newgate on the 30th of November 1824, was a major event and was apparently watched by 100,000 people. (laughs) And a broadside was produced giving an account of the execution and dying behaviour of Fauntleroy whilst another sort of talked about his sorrowful lamentation and a third was an account of his trial. Two more gave details of the execution because there was just so much interest in the case. So broadsides were single sheets of paper that are different to like the full newspapers, but they'd basically be like a one topic thing. So it would entertain the reader with details of the crime, the trial and the punishment of the criminal And it often included the last true confession and lament of the condemned person. We need to bring those back. They sound great. Yeah, it does sound good, doesn't it? It's basically tabloids for back then. Yeah. By the 19th century, newspapers had become more widely available. They would carry detailed accounts of the trials and executions, but the broadsides were basically like the tabloid part of reporting. But... They were printed before the execution, so they couldn't actually like describe an event that hadn't happened yet accurately. And quite often the criminal would be reprieved. So the broadside would go to print and then the execution they discussed didn't even happen. Because I suppose they needed it printed and ready um, for the crowd of like, say, 100,000 people. To buy them at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Otherwise, what's the point? Exactly. But even with these being pretty rubbish for history buffs to kind of use as fact, the public at the time lapped them up. And human nature hasn't changed that much at all, has it? Because we wouldn't be recording this podcast if people weren't interested in true crime. There wouldn't be such a huge draw for people to buy true crime books or magazines or watch TV documentaries or films about true crime. And I just wanted to mention again... I know what's coming now. I know what's coming. Yeah, we were in True Crime Monthly. And we've had more people message and say, like, I saw you in the magazine. Yeah, featured in issue three, Mm -hmm. um, available in all good news agents. And random supermarkets. And random supermarkets. And the shit supermarket, the little shit corner shop by me. Yeah, it's everywhere. It was, I was very, I was like, oh my God, it's even here. It's actually quite good. I've read it. It's it's, a really good magazine. Yeah, yeah. So the Illustrated Police News, first published on the 20th of February 1864, was a very popular tabloid-style publication which was packed with details of the latest murder cases and executions. It included high-quality drawings that were included of the murder scene, the criminal and the execution. This actually ended up overtaking the broadsheets in popularity and I can understand why. There would be facts about the crime, the criminal and even the supposed dreams of the criminal prior to their hanging. What? I guess people what were really fuck? interested in dreams and stuff, though. Because so, they were so fucking stupid back then. Not stupid. They, they were. Didn't... They're fucking idiots 200 years ago. <sighs> You're so horrible to people. I'm They're horrible to them. They can't read. They can't hear you either because they're dead like 200 years ago. But nah. don't be so mean. It was entertainment. Mm. You probably watch some shit on tv yourself (laughs) what's this have a go at mark day (laughs) probably even though photography did exist it was kind of impossible for photos to be printed in newspapers so they would make death masks of the famous criminals after execution and put them on display one such mask was of william corder who was hanged on the 11th of august 1828 for shooting maria martin in the famous red barn murder 
Don't know if that's ringing any bells there, Mark. Was that Twisted Britain? It was, yeah. So his mask can be viewed at the Moyes Hall Museum in Bury St Edmunds. And that's the town where his execution took place. His skin was removed and tanned during his dissection. So a book about his trial was created and bound in his own skin. Um, So yes, if you listen to our crossover episodes with Twisted Britain, Bob told us all about this case. Mm, Um, I remember, yeah. That was over on their half of the two-parter. And although the public did love watching the executions and reading the tabloids and taking souvenirs from the hangings as well, efforts to reduce the number of capital crimes and thus executions had been going on from the end of the 18th century. During the first 40 years of the 19th century, there was quite a lot of success in attempting to bring the numbers down. And over time, people campaigned a lot to try and abolish capital punishment or the death penalty. Some notable names of people who were sentenced to death in the UK are Alice Glaston, who was the youngest girl known of that was legally executed in England at age 11 in 1546. John Dean was the youngest known person legally executed in England at aged 8 or 9 for arson in 1629. And King Charles I was the only English or Scottish king to be executed. He was beheaded in 1649. A few little pointers mm. for you. A lot history. happened in the 17th century. Yeah. Great Fire of London, the plague, he was executed. Mm-hmm. So I will be returning to the history of the death penalty in the UK towards the end of the episode, but now we are going to head over to the rural village of Alton in Hampshire and we're going to go to 1867. Alton was, and apparently still is, quite a quaint, picturesque market town. Situated in the south of England, Jane Austen lived there. Mm -hmm. The 1861 census shows that Fanny Adams lived with her parents, George and Harriet, and her five siblings, and the people historians believe were her grandparents lived next door. Her father was an agricultural worker, and whilst the family were not rich, it's reported that she had a happy life, even though it was rather simple. Fanny was described as a tall, comely and intelligent girl who appeared older than her age of eight. She was known locally for her lively and cheerful disposition and indeed this was such a small village where everyone knew everyone. Fanny's best friend Minnie Warner was the same age. Fanny and Minnie, fuck off. I thought you could get through this episode without saying something, Mark. Come on. Her best friend Minnie Warner was the same age and lived next door but one to the Adams home which was in Tanhouse Lane. At one end of Tanhouse Lane, there was a... F- I just keep smiling and I'm laughing sorry, now because yeah. I can just see you I'll just put you off like- now. Yes, her name is Fanny Adams. Her name is Fanny, Mark. Yeah, but it's the other one's called Minnie. At one end of Tanhouse Lane, there was a place called Flood Meadows, the River Way and a hop garden. Quite crucially, this town had previously seen very little crime during the 19th century. The afternoon of the 24th of August, 1867, was reported as fine, sunny and hot. Fanny, her sister Lizzie, aged five, and her best friend Minnie wanted to play outside and enjoy the summer weather. They would often go and play in nearby flood meadows, and so their request to Harriet wasn't really an unusual one, and she said, of course, they could go off and play. I've read that she had, like, lots of chores and housework to get on with, and her husband George was planning to play cricket later that day, so she was probably loving the idea of having some peace and quiet. The three children set off on the short trip and as they walked, they were approached by a man that they had seen in church before. He was wearing a frock coat, light coloured trousers and a tall hat on his head. And whilst the girls didn't know his name, this was Frederick Baker, a 29-year-old solicitor's clerk. Baker had moved to work and live in Alton about two months prior, which allegedly made him 
kind of unfamiliar with the town. He'd only been there a couple of months. The girls thought the baker appeared to be drunk, but because they believed him to be a respectable man, um, they were a little bit wary when he approached them, but not properly afraid. They'd seen him at church and that sort of thing, and he had seen him around. Now, he then offered Fanny a halfpenny to go with him to the nearby hop garden and offered the other two children a further three halfpennies to go play elsewhere. The girls took all the money, but then they just carried on playing and didn't split up. Um, So he was trying to get Fanny on her own and to split her from those two. Um, They'd seen him at like church meetings and stuff, so they didn't really mind taking his money and they just carried on playing, but he hovered nearby uh, picking blackberries and then he'd give them them and then they'd eat them. And it all just sounds a bit weird, but I had to keep reminding myself it's 1867, so times are very different. He did linger around and watched them, but he didn't really make any moves towards her. After an hour or so, Lizzie and Minnie, by now tired, hot and hungry, decided to go home. It was about half one in the afternoon, and as they made their way to leave, Baker quickly intercepted them and asked Fanny to accompany him to the next village, which was called Sheldon. The other two girls carried on, unaware that when Fanny refused to go with Frederick, he grabbed her and, screaming, dragged her into a nearby hop garden. Lizzie and Minnie ran back to Townhouse Lane and carried on playing together, just oblivious of Fanny's abduction, and they were five and eight, so I'm not surprised. It was not until about 5pm when they made their way home for dinner. Um, Mrs Gardner, who also lived in Townhouse Lane, had kind of noticed that Fanny wasn't there and so asked the girls where their friend was. They told her about the man from earlier and that Fanny had gone off with him, so Mrs Gardner went to tell Mrs Adams and they went off to go look for the little girl. So the pair actually bumped into Frederick not long after they began their search, so he hadn't got far. Mrs Gardner asked Baker what he'd done with the child, but because he was quite respected in the town, they didn't really have any suspicions anything tragic had occurred. I get the impression they were just like, what's happened, where is she? And it's all like back then it was a very defined class system. So if a man worked as a solicitor's clerk, wore a suit to work, he was automatically respected. One, just for being a man. And he's got a job. But two, because he's got a job and he wears a suit and he works for a solicitor. So, yeah, they would have probably been really wary Mm -hmm. in terms of, you know, not disrespecting him by saying, have you murdered that little girl? And Minnie had identified him as the man that had given her pennies and he'd actually then contradicted her by saying, no, three halfpence. So he's kind of confirming that he was the guy that they saw before. And Frederick assured the women that he often gave money to children for buying sweets. Not not suspicious at all. Well, not then, I don't think. But again, like back then, I don't think that was that weird. But now you'd be like, right, call Mm, the police. Grooming. Um, He assured them that that was like fine and normal. But he refused to kind of give his name to Harriet. He did tell her his job role. And when he said, you know, I'm the clerk of the local solicitor, William Clement, they kind of were like, fair enough. Like, I he's, get it, yeah. he's fine. Mrs. Gardner, to be fair to her, she did try and challenge him. She um, was like, I have a great mind to give you charge to the police, which I thought was very Is that grand. like olden day speak of, I'm going to tell in. the police <laughs> yeah. about you? Um, Baker basically said, you can do what you like and kept his cool and the two women were kind of like well there's nothing else we can do after all whilst they were anxious this isn't 2019 where we know about stranger danger and apparently there hadn't been a murder in living memory in the town you love stranger danger don't you you've mentioned (laughs) that loads it's like what a sort of four-year-old kid is taught it stuck with me Mark. it so has stranger danger and as per last week don't be a drug mule yeah (laughs) 
When it got to 7pm and Fanny was still missing, a search party was formed. They probably thought that she'd had like an accident or something. They were going to go look for her, but I doubt for a minute they believed that she'd been murdered. They began the search in the hollow to no success. And in a nearby hop garden, labourer Thomas Gates found the head of Fanny Adams stuck on two hop poles while he was tending his crops. This would be brutal enough, but he realised that an ear had been severed from the head and the head had two large cuts from mouth to ear across the temple. Her eyes were missing. What? And the hop field has been described as a sickening scene of carnage. Further searches unearthed Fanny's dismembered torso. The head, arms and legs were separated from the trunk. There were three incisions on the left side of the chest and a deep cut on the left arm, dividing her muscles. Fanny's forearm was cut off at the elbow joint and her left leg was nearly severed off at the hip joint and her left foot cut off at the ankle point. Her right leg was torn from the trunk. The entire contents of chest and pelvis had been torn out and scattered with some internal organs even further slashed or mutilated. Further incisions had been made on the liver, the heart cut out and the vagina missing. So savage was the butchery that other parts of her body were covered only after extensive searches over several days. Her eyes were finally found in the riverway. We've definitely featured some brutal shit on this show, but I think that's got to be the worst. Isn't that absolutely horrific? In terms of like butchering someone. Mm -hmm. That's awful. Harriet rushed to get her husband, but collapsed on the way before she could reach him, and word was sent instead. He came rushing back from his cricket match, and on hearing the details, he did what I imagine any father would do if he worked on a farm. He grabbed and loaded his shotgun and set off to hunt down his daughter's killer. Luckily for Frederick, neighbours stopped him and sat with him through the night. And I think, yeah, like, they did the right thing, but also I feel really sorry for him because he just wanted justice. And I don't think he would have ended up in prison for doing that. I don't feel like, like back he in would those back days, then. in a small community, mm. it would have just been like, well, the community has handed out justice. That, yeah. yeah. So the following day, the locals continued their search for Fanny's body parts. Hundreds of people visited the hop garden to collect the scattered remains. The police tried unsuccessfully to find the murder weapons, as they suspected that small knives had been used to commit the crime, but it's highly likely that the crowd of searching people had either inadvertently trampled down any clues into the ground or lost them or thought they were not important at all. And obviously they didn't know about forensic like we do today, so the body parts and clothing were just gathered up and people would just take whatever they found Everything was taken to a nearby house called Leathern Bottle to be sewn back together, and this was only yards oh. from Fanny's home. Most of her body parts were collected on that second day, but an arm, foot, and intestine were not found until the next morning. Um, the breastbone was never found, and one foot was still in a shoe when it was found. From Leathern Bottle, the police took the sewn back together body to the local police station. A stone which still had flesh and hair sticking to it was also handed into the police's evidence, as whoever found it thought that it might have been the actual murder weapon. It's not really going to cut. Oh, yes, it could have killed her. Yeah. And then he's cut her up after. Exactly. Not with a stone. Not with a stone. And at the same time, the police went off in search of Baker, who had gone to work as normal the next day at the solicitor's offices in Alton. He was arrested on suspicion of murder. I know nothing about it, he said, before being escorted through an angry crowd to Alton Police Station. 
The wristbands of Baker's shirt and his trousers were spotted with blood and his boots, socks and trouser bottoms were wet, which I found weird at first that he hadn't changed his clothes. But then I remembered this was 1867 and people probably didn't have changes of clothes. That's true, yeah. Yeah, I can't imagine they really washed very Well, it was often. like it was a real ball ache to do your washing back yeah. then because you'd have to wash everything by hand and, I don't know, they used like those sort of machines to like rinse it and it was just mm, a ball ache. Yeah. So you'd probably just wear the same shit and go around stinking all the time. Because everyone did, so everyone yeah. was the same. They all stank of shit. So when he was challenged about the blood spatters um, on the sort of wristbands of his shirt and his trousers, he literally said, the only thing he answered with was, well, that won't hang me, will it? In like a really nonchalant manner. And he explained that he had a habit of walking in water when he was out on his little walk. So why would they not be wet on the bottoms? He also couldn't explain how his clothing came to be bloodstained. But to be fair, there wasn't that much blood. It was spatters. The Hampshire Chronicle reported that Baker remained completely unfazed with the murder and he did not exhibit any symptoms of insanity. But That is insanity, though. Yeah. I would say. To not be worrying. And... Yeah. More evidence. So two small knives, one of them stained with blood, came to light when he was searched and the police locked him up and set about checking Frederick's movements for the day. He had left his office at roughly one o'clock. He'd returned back to the office after three. He'd then gone out another time later in the day before returning at half five. Mrs Gardner and Mrs Adams had seen him coming from the direction of the Hopfield sometime after five, which did fit the timeline. There was a witness called Mr Biddle who came forward to give his account of a conversation with Frederick at about 6pm that day, where he described the two women approaching him with questions about the missing girl. The witness, Mr Biddle, then said Frederick had seemed disturbed and said... It will be very awkward for me if the child is murdered. God. Mm. Later, the pair had gone to the Swan for a drink where Frederick said he might have to leave town the following Monday. And when Mr Biddle said, um, you might find it hard to get a new job suddenly, Frederick had replied, quite tellingly, I could go as a butcher. So he's kind of talking about this Mm. a little bit too much. On the following Monday, while searching Frederick's office desk, um, one of the detectives, detective I think it was Detective Cheney, found his diary and it contained a damning entry which read, Honestly, this guy's just stupid. 24th of August, Saturday, killed a young girl. It was fine and hot. Oh. So Frederick admitted writing this, but he tried to say he was drunk when he wrote it. And what he meant was that he was aware that the girl had been murdered, but he was just drunk when he wrote it. And that he hadn't actually killed that her. he hadn't killed her, but... It's pretty damning. It's very ridiculous. Another witness came forward. It was a young child who'd seen Frederick leaving the hop garden where Fanny was found, and he'd seen him covered in blood. He saw him stop and wash himself in a nearby pond, and he also stated that he saw Frederick calmly wipe himself with a handkerchief and then put a small knife and another unidentified weapon into his jacket pockets. The Alton Divisional Police Surgeon was able to determine the rock that had blood and hair attached that had been found probably was the murder weapon, and his post-mortem finding was that death had been caused by a crushing blow to Fanny's head. On the Tuesday, the inquest was held at the Duke's Head Inn, and the jury basically would view the remains and hear all the evidence, and British law at the time required that in the case of sudden death, an immediate inquest had to be held under the jurisdiction of a coroner. So in the case of Fanny Adams's inquest, Deputy County Coroner Robert Harfield was in charge of the proceedings, 
and they were held at the Duke's Head Inn at Alton on the 27th of August, 1867. So, oh no, he's police superintendent, sorry, not detective. Ooh, you I apologise, I know. So, Alton's divisional police superintendent, Cheney, was in attendance, along with acting chief constable superintendent Everett, who was representing Hampshire Constabulary. And coincidentally, the pub where the initial trials were held was actually opposite the solicitor's office where Baker had worked, and it was really close to the police station. But I also feel like everything would have to be close because you didn't have cars or anything. So. And who holds a fucking inquest in a pub? These guys. I think maybe things would get done better if everything was in pubs mm. nowadays. True. So Frederick Baker was handcuffed throughout and he was asked if he wanted to say anything. And at that point he responded, no, sir, only that I am innocent. The first to give evidence that this was Minnie, followed by Fanny's mother Harriet, and finally Mrs Gardner, who had obviously gone with Harriet Adams to search for her daughter. The jury returned a verdict of the following, of willful murder against Frederick Baker for killing and slaying Fanny Adams. So they heard all the in- the information and they were like, yep. And then he basically had to remain in prison to wait for the formal committal hearing. So that was like an inquest and then this would be his his real trial. So I thought that was quite interesting as well because I don't think we'd have anything that would be like that nowadays where you'd almost be tried twice. Well, I don't know because it's almost like you'd go before the court and then be remanded in prison awaiting your trial. But then that's just to hear the, yeah. the sentence, like the... Not the sentence, like but to the, hear charge. the charge. And I think nowadays our inquest is, was it murder or not? So, like, how well, did yeah, they die? Well, yeah. So, yeah, interesting. He then had to stay in Alton Prison to await the formal committal hearing. And apparently he didn't really sleep well. Um, he physically shuddered at the sight of meat. But who knows if that's like a bit of a dramatic Yeah, like an urban legend. Yeah. The formal hearing was held at Alton Town Hall on Thursday the 29th of August before local magistrates where Frederick continued to protest his innocence but his fleas fell on deaf ears and he was then sent to Winchester Prison ready for the full trial. The date of which was set for the 5th of December and a large crowd had gathered and the police could only just protect him from the mob. So after Fanny's body had been discovered the police searched the whole area for 16 days but no other weapons were found. The Hampshire Chronicle also reported that the hop garden had been cleared on the 21st of September, but nothing connected with the murder had been found either. And whilst he was in Winchester Prison, Frederick Baker was apparently pretty chatty to the wardens, especially the chaplain, and he insisted that his conscience was clearest to the murder, and he would actually wonder who the guilty party was and hope that he would be found. At this prison, he ate and slept quite well, so it was quite a contrast in, to his time in Alton Prison. Frederick Baker's trial opened at Winchester Aziz on the 5th of December. Throughout the proceedings, he denied killing the eight-year-old little girl and remained calm and collected. During the trial, Fanny's best friend Minnie was called to give evidence. That wouldn't happen these days considering she was eight years old. Thank God. And, like, she actually would be there giving evidence at the trial. Mm. I mean, they do do... They do have minors give evidence, but it would be, like, not live it would be taken mm. recorded and then Played shown to or, the jury yeah. yeah in court crazy his defense did challenge the eyewitness testimonies considering they were all generally from young children um and they also stated that the knives found on frederick were unlikely to have been big enough to dismember a human body especially as she was found in so many it's a, pieces it's a fair point it is 
Um, the prosecution, though, they had the witness statements that put Frederick at the scene, and then they also used his mental state and his family mental health history, which I think is a lot more common back then. The prosecution revealed that Frederick's dad had shown an inclination to assault, even to kill his children. And Frederick had had a cousin who'd been in asylums four times. Brain fever had caused his sister's death. And they actually revealed that Frederick himself had attempted suicide after a love affair that had gone wrong. <sighs> Does that really mean that he's going to chop up a little girl? Definitely not. No. But it... That's it kind of what it used to be back in the day. Yeah, I, I do. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know how I feel about that. I think people were in asylums for so many things. So because yeah. his cousin was in an asylum four times, could be anything. The defence also did argue that the diary entry was typical of the epileptic or formal way of entry that the defendant used, and the absence of a comma after the word "killed" did not render the entry as a confession. So. Just uh, The judge, Mr Justice Meller, advised the jury that they could consider him to be irresponsible for his actions due to his mental health if they wanted to, but the jury were apparently pretty un- unimpressed by that. They retreated to discuss the case for just 15 minutes before oh, finding him guilty. 15 minutes. <laughs> yeah. Frederick Baker was hanged before a crowd of 5,000 people on Christmas Eve 1867 at Winchester Jail, and this was the last public execution held at that jail. Mm. the crowd were apparently incredibly angry as you can imagine and a large majority of the spectators were women i have found the broadsheet depicting his hanging and also the front cover of the police news which was the tabloid we discussed earlier they're really easy to find if you have a little google and it's really interesting to see um it's not even that hard to read like i just expected it to be different language almost but it wasn't too hard so on the tableau about the hanging, it stated, at the appointed time, he was conducted to the scaffold and after a few minutes spent in prayer, he was launched into eternity. Oh, yeah. Talk about sensationalism. Mm-hmm. God. I loved that phrase. Following the execution, it was made public knowledge that he had actually written to George and Harriet, Fanny's parents, to express deep sorrow over the crime that he had committed in an unguarded hour and not with malice afterthought. He had written asking for their forgiveness, saying he had simply become enraged at her crying, but she was killed without any pain or struggle. He also emphatically denied that he had violated the child or attempted to do so. That I thought was very key thing to put in because a lot of articles about this talk about Miss Pedophile. And whilst he's not a nice person and I do not want to defend him, you can't just say someone's a pedophile when they weren't he chopped up the little girl and it's horrible but Mm. i think a psychologist Mm. would need to unravel yeah exactly what he is because that's still i don't know there could be sort of also to be 29 and this is your first crime and you go mental and smash a girl's head in with a rock but hadn't he moved to this area Mm -hmm. so he wasn't well known there so why did he move yeah and he moved because yeah yeah Oh, do you know what? I hadn't even Ooh, thought of that. I'm going to have to start investigating. That's why there's two of us. Yeah. Dream team. Determined not to forget Fanny, the local community of Alton raised the money for a headstone, which still stands in the cemetery where she's buried. And the tombstone says, sacred to the memory of Fanny Adams, aged eight years and four months, who was cruelly murdered on Saturday, 24th of August, 1867. Fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Matthew 10, verse 28. 
bit fucking dramatic mm, for an eight-year-old. I quite like it, though. Gravestone. And I'm sure that the name of the little girl from this week's case is memorable to a few of our listeners due to the phrase yeah. Sweet Fanny Adams. It is not just a random link. She actually inspired the phrase. So, so I thought she you'd has find a legacy. This, I thought you'd find this really interesting. Yeah. It's a sad legacy, though. Yeah, yeah. So in 1869, tinned mutton was introduced as rations in the British Navy. And unsurprisingly, the meals were disgusting. In typical British dark humour sort of fashion, the sailors made a joke that they might as well be eating the dismembered body parts of Fanny Adams. The joke spread and the tins became nicknamed a tin of Fanny Adams. And the phrase began to mean something that it wasn't worth having or it was worth nothing. Oh, that's so sad. Yeah. And then the tins that British sailors are still served their meals in today are known as Fannies. Wow. And the phrase then filtered out into wider society. It was also known as Sweet F.A., which in more modern times worked out as standing for Sweet Fuck All. So it's kind of had Mm. a couple of jumps where it's linked to different things. But ultimately, this phrase originates from that poor little eight-year-old child. And it made me really sad that that's why we remember her name. But isn't it weird that, you know, even in probably hundreds of years, people will still be using that phrase from a murder that might have happened 500 years ago by then? Exactly. It's it's like a really weird legacy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just it's weird, but it's horrible. Yeah, and this was the thing with this with this case is when I first looked, there's not there's no new evidence. There's never going to be new evidence. Whatever we've got right now is what we're going to ever have, because it was all written about at the time. And there's they found the guy straight away, and it sounds like it was him. I'm pretty yeah, happy yeah. to say that he was the one who did it. Yeah, he then definitely. also confessed deathbed confession or whatever it is like oh. cursed as obviously because he wrote to them asking for forgiveness oh of course before, before he, he was hanged. hung yeah but and so whether or not that was like he just felt like he had to to try and get into heaven or something i don't know because that was possibly something that people would care about more then but i think there's just too way, much there's too much evidence i think it stacks was him. up against him yeah so it's just interesting, but that is that's all there is to it. So that was mm, the case. Love it. Mm. So we're now going to jump forward to the 1950s and the successful implementation of the Homicide Act 1957. So campaigners were calling for a sort of lockdown on people being sentenced to death. And this act was quite a big win for them because it now distinguished between capital and non-capital murder. It meant that only six categories of murder were now punishable by execution. So they were in the course or furtherance of theft by shooting or causing an explosion, whilst resisting arrest or during an escape, um, murder of a police officer, murder of a prison officer by a prisoner, and the second of two murders committed on different occasions if both were done in Great Britain. So this then meant that as of this act in 1957, only the very worst criminals could be sentenced to death. But then what about child killers? I mean, like that's not on the list and I kind of think... But- if they killed one child, no. If it was mm. a second murder yeah, onwards, yeah. then it would yeah. be. So, yeah, it doesn't matter. Your first mm-hmm. murder is not necessarily... It's not going to be sentenced to death. The police and the government were of the opinion that the death penalty deterred offenders from carrying firearms, um, but campaigns still continued, and there's always going to be this thing of, like, is the death penalty right or wrong? In 1965, the Labour MP Sidney Silverman put forward a private member's bill to suspend the death penalty for murder. He had been committed to the cause of abolition for more than 20 years and he'd written about several miscarriages of justice in the 1940s and 1950s, such as, for example, the hanging of Timothy Evans, 
when it later emerged that serial killer John Christie had murdered Evans's wife. He'd been hung for that crime. The bill was passed in the House of Commons by 200 votes to 98, but it wasn't passed by the House of Lords. In 1965, he successfully piloted the murder, brackets, abolition of death penalty, close brackets, bill through Parliament. Oh, you said that beautifully, Did I? Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Abolish- oh, now she's fucked it up. Can't say abolishing. Abolishing capital punishment for murder in Britain and in the British Armed Forces for a period of five years. The murder, open brackets, abolition of death penalty, close brackets, act of 1965... Oh, there she goes again. ...suspended the death penalty in Great Britain, but not in Northern Ireland, for murder for a period of five years, and substituted this with a mandatory sentence of life imprisonment. It further provided that if, before the expiry of the five-year suspension, each House of Parliament passed a resolution to make the effect of the act permanent, then it would become permanent. And obviously there were going to be people on the side of death penalty continuing, such as Patrick Downey, the uncle of Leslie Ann Downey, a victim from the Moores murders case. Mm. And he actually opposed Silverman in the general election of 1966. So he's got a really personal reason to want the death penalty to continue. In 1969, the Home Secretary, James Callaghan, proposed a motion to make the Act permanent, which was carried in the House of Commons on the 16th of December 1969. And a similar motion was carried in the House of Lords on the 18th of December. And following this abolition of the death penalty for murder, the House of Commons held a vote during each subsequent Parliament all the way until 1997 to vote on whether or not they should revoke this and restore the death penalty. This motion was always defeated but the death penalty did remain for certain crimes. For example, piracy with violence, that was punishable by execution until 1998. I'm shocked at this. And treason until 1998. However, no executions were carried out in the United Kingdom for any of these offences after the abolition of the death penalty. So you still could have, but but they never would But they wouldn't. The death penalty for murder was abolished in Northern Ireland on the 25th of July, 1973. There was also a working gallows at Her Majesty's Prison Wandsworth, London, right the way up until 1994, and it was tested every six months until 1992, just in case it needed to be used. This is now housed at the National Justice Museum in Nottingham. The last execution in England was on the 13th of August 1964, when Peter Anthony Allen at Walton Prison in Liverpool and Gwyn Owen Evans at Strangeways Prison in Manchester were executed for the murder of John Allen West that they'd committed earlier that year. There are still people who call for the death penalty to be reinstated using cases such as the Moores murder, the killers of Jane Bolger, the Yorkshire Ripper, just to name a few. And there are always going to be cases where people feel that prison is in inverted commas, too good for the murderer. But as Sidney Silverman wrote about, there are always going to be cases where a miscarriage of justice strengthens the argument of those who oppose the reintroduction of the death penalty. So two examples really from what we've talked about in this podcast. Barry George led a successful appeal. Yep, so that was episode four of season one. Jill Dando's Dando, episode. Yeah. Um, back in episode three of... This series, I talked about Stefan Kisko, who was wrongly convicted of murdering Leslie Molseed. In that particular case, evidence was given by three young women, and this eyewitness testimony was crucial to the prosecution's case. 
And ultimately, the wrong man was imprisoned. In because what they was, all lied. And they all fucking lied. They all lied. lied in court, these girls. Oh, my God, that still makes me so angry to remember. But he could have died had... Well, he got out of prison and then died so shortly afterwards mm. as well. He didn't even yeah. get to enjoy his freedom. Um, that was classed as what the worst miscarriage of justice in British history. Mm. And I think that, for me, is always going to be the reason why we shouldn't have the death penalty. Agreed. So what are your thoughts? Me, yeah, I, I'm with you. Yeah, I completely mm. agree. I think, I just, I think it's barbaric. I don't think we should have it. Um, and I think that argument that you've just so succinctly put across is the very reason that mm. we shouldn't have it in place. I can't take credit. Sydney Silverman wrote about it, mm. and he'd spent twenty years campaigning. And I, yeah, I just think there's always going to be cases where you're just like, Do you know what, that person doesn't deserve prison or a lovely life, or whatever, but. What about these other times? But it's also a bit like I've said in a recent episode, I can't remember which one, but, you know, we are lucky that something horrific has never happened to somebody Mm -hmm. we love. Mm -hmm. Because if you are in that situation, then you may well call for the death penalty. Yeah, exactly. And Adam from the True uh, UK True Crime podcast, he put a comment up on Facebook recently that had really interesting debate where he just said, could you kill someone? And it was really interesting because a lot of people were like, no, couldn't. My personal feeling is it depends on the situation, but I don't know how I deal with the after effects. Mm. But yes, I could. And some people were sort of like, yeah, it depends on what it is, but I reckon I could deal with it if it was for these reasons. And that was very interesting because some people are just like, nope. Great question. Mm. Great dinner party question. Yeah, exactly. So we're going to pop a discussion thread on Facebook um, the morning that this episode drops. Just ask him for what your kind of thoughts are around the death penalty. Be interesting to hear if you've got a differing view to me and Mark. Mm, Yeah, please do look out for that. Get in touch in the usual ways if you want to have some comments shared. We are on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Just search for Seeing Red. A UK true crime podcast. I love it. Thanks for listening, everybody. See you next time. Bye. Bye. Hi angels, it's your girl Louise Rumble and I'm the host of the Open House Podcast. Therapy quite literally changed my life and sent me straight into my hot healing girl era. Now each week I share my story, the good, the bad and the downright juicy and chat with some of the world's best therapists, psychologists and wellness experts. From love, sex and dating to attachment styles, nervous system regulation, wellness hacks, hormone balancing and more, nothing is off the table. I've emptied my bank account on therapy and healing so you don't have to. So if you're ready to leave the past in the past and build the future you've always deserved, me and my favorite experts are waiting for you on the Open House podcast. Listen now wherever you stream your podcasts and I cannot wait to meet you.